a lot of people doing a little tiny thing can have a very big effect. On the other hand, to what degree do we believe that a lot of people are doing that little tiny thing? So fundamentally, I think growth hacking is breaking process, if not breaking the rules. Is that a nudge or is that marketing? Oh, I call that nagware. (laughs) (laughs) From Orion X, this is the Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Marketing Podcast. I'm Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. All right. Excellent. We are most of the way through summer, and we had another set of really interesting topics on Twitter, mostly, for those of you who follow Doug or I. Well, the first one I think we should talk about is nudging. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) Um, No, not the Monty Python version. And it came out when somebody passed along an article that the headline is no evidence for nudging after adjusting for publication bias. And I wanted, I think we should jump into this because nudging has become a shiny bobble in a lot of marketing. So not everybody listening to us may have heard about it, but it's become a shiny bobble among marketers who, you know, we're always looking for things that give us a lot for nothing. So I guess that's our topic for this show. Yeah. So this is a great start because I had several questions just seeing that tweet that you can illuminate. Mm -hmm. When I saw nudging, the first question was, is that the same as a marketing touch? Number two, publication bias. What does that mean? In what context are we even talking about publication bias? So take us through, set the scene. The idea with a nudge is that, and this is just generally looking at people's behavior, small things cause people to alter their behavior sometimes. So, for example, if you put the fruit in a grocery store at eye level, that may nudge people to buy more fruit of that type whatever the type is you're putting up there. We know that from retail behavior that goods at eye level sell fastest. So when you look at every grocery store shelf is striated top to bottom in tiers and the stuff at eye level sells fastest, of course you have to decide whether you're kid eyes or adult eyes Mm -hmm. Um, because in toy stores, it's the stuff at kid level that sells fastest. So you know, if you go off and look at the foundation, The talk about a nudge is that a nudge is something which is easy and cheap to avoid. In other words, they're not forcing customers to do something. You know, they can decide what to do about the fruit that's at the eye level. The alternative, if we're wanting to encourage people to eat well, kind of the extreme alternative is to ban junk food, right? There's an absolute step by an outside force that says you will eat well. So that's the removal of the choice altogether rather than making it a little bit less convenient or add a little bit friction to it. And when we say nudge, we're trying to facilitate, lubricate, remove friction, make it more convenient, the choices that allegedly are better for all sort of a thing. And a nudge is a big deal in architecture because there are little things you can do when you build a building that encourage people to take a certain path or to act a certain way in certain areas. I always love those designer things that show a quad in a college that's all neatly laid out. There's a perfect cross of paved pathways. And then there's one dirt path that people have you know done on their right. own because that's the natural way to go. So nudging people is done to get them to walk on certain pathways or you pave that one because you notice that's the natural way people go. So, you know, there's always this conversation almost between an architect and people. 
the yeah. thing that happened is nudging became then suggested as the way for either for government to encourage behavior or for companies to get people to buy their product. This already happens in software, where certain options are a lot more easily accessible than others mm -hmm. because they show up in the default ribbon at the top or they're not mm -hmm. buried under certain, you know, click on this, click on that. And that, to some extent, is because those options are less used and therefore don't need to be so prominent. But sometimes because you're trying to train users to do it in a certain way and not certain other ways. Mm -hmm. That message I get continually on my iPad that says I haven't configured Siri, is that a nudge or is that marketing? Oh, I you call know? that nagware. <laughs> <laughs> now, nagware is one step behind bullyware. <laughs> when... <laughs> <laughs> so we have a continuum here, and in the middle we have nudges, then Nudge we have nagging, and then we have bullies. Okay, I'm with you on that. Uh, and actually, we're laughing about it, but I think there's some truth there. I think you know, some... a nudge in one person's eyes may be a nag in another person's eyes. You know, whether it's a nudge or not is based on perception. So companies need to be very careful if they think they're nudging, because they may be nagging. Or they might be bullying. <laughs> okay, so the article gets sent out, and it says, as its headline, no evidence for nudging after adjusting for publication bias. Now, first, I welcome this because I think, like I said, nudging has become a shiny bauble. Too many people think it's too effective. It kind of becomes that brainless. Everybody should be doing this right now thing. So a little bit of friction against it is a good thing. So I welcome the idea that maybe it's not the ubiquitous end-all solution for all things. On the other hand, I went public. Publication bias? Question, what is publication bias? What do we mean when we say publication bias? Well, yeah, that's important because when I read that, what I thought it meant was this publication's biased, that one's not. That's not what it means. What it means is there's an inherent bias in the results that are published. In other words, guess what? Results that are positive get published. Results that are negative tend not to get published. And so in this case, what they're saying is the articles you're reading that all say nudging works, you, they're all biased by the fact they got accepted. What you're not seeing are the articles that don't get published or the studies that don't get published. It's actually not far different from the survivor bias that affects a lot of research in business, where a researcher goes around and talks to all the successful companies and, and, and says, well, all the successful companies share these common factors. Like they're organized. Yeah, but the unsuccessful ones are organized too. You know, what right. they don't do is really do a, a so there is a bias. So it's a valid bias. So that that's right, what they right, meant right. by public. But but in this case, the bias is simply other studies that have been published about the effectiveness of nudges. And mm -hmm. the assertion is that of those studies that have actually been published in publications, most of them have been successful. So therefore there's a bias against studies that were not successful, either because they were never got published or not accepted for right. publication. Well, and there's some degree we're all going like, duh, yeah, why would they publish the ones that... Because they well, usually I mean, boring, my guess yeah. Is, yeah, I mean, if there was a study that came out and said, you know, nudging, you know, we did this perfect nudge and nothing happened, that probably would get published. Mm. But most likely, most of the studies, if they're negative, come out and say, I don't know, it was murky or it was mushy. Mm. You know, mm. that stuff never gets published. Mm. You know, I mean, what, mm. what magazine is going to put in a headline of, I don't know. And what right. do you think about nudging? I don't know. Studies have been inconclusive. <laughs> yeah, studies are inconclusive. It's not really going to get published. Yeah, so they're all positive. Now, of course, I got to look at it and say, does this also mean 
that there weren't any studies where it was negative. Mm. You know, I don't know. How do you tell that it's a bias of the stuff that got published or if it's reality that it all showed the same thing? That's tricky. Um, and I don't know the answer. I'm not saying that's what happened. I just think that the more we, you and I have dug into it today, the less I think that this publication bias idea is really very clear. Um, mm. so. Well, I think the just to our listeners, Doug and I spent like a good half an hour, 45 minutes looking at the papers that were behind the paper that got published. And within that short span of time, so you know, for what it's worth, one observation that I had was that even the paper that was published was based on assumptions. They mm-hmm. are, in fact, saying in their conclusions that assuming this and assuming that, and the question there is, is any assumption possible in that situation? If those papers did not get published, what can we actually assume about them? Mm-hmm. Is it because it just wasn't working at all or would work a little bit or in this situation. So that, in fact, causes everything to indeed be inconclusive, right? Am I getting that right? Yes, absolutely you are. I think, in the, you know, I mean, we don't know anything about the what didn't. And you can't make any conclusions without knowing anything about what didn't. So I would have been comfortable if they'd said the evidence on nudging seems to be affected by publication bias. Oh, okay. That would be, you know, that would make me pay attention. Yeah, that's hard to argue with. Yeah. But they came up with this. Well, there's no evidence for it because we adjusted. Well, uh, yeah, that's such a fuzzy personal thing. Well, they referenced two other papers that had done other analyses that caused other assumptions, but even those papers were making Mm -hmm. an assumption. So, you know, just by referencing somebody else's assumption doesn't make it not an assumption. No, No. and the problem we have here is a lot of this stuff is dressed up in statistical, firmly statistical, conclusive terminology when it shouldn't be. It should be, this is what we think, or, you know, this would be, if we assumed this, then here's what happens. But it's not dressed up with that. It's used, it uses a lot of really thick, opaque jargon that you ha- you and I spent all that time trying to track down what is this jargon. Maybe that's okay for their audience. Maybe the paper is getting used outside of the context of who they were intending it for. That very well could be. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, for those of us who are outside of how papers publish, we have to be real careful about that. Um, yeah. I suppose we have to be more careful when we throw these articles around on that. But I think, you know, the kind of the question still comes down to, so what do we think about nudges? And I, I think that I, you know, I look at this and I think there's a, a bunch of stuff. First of all, there are a lot of small things that affect things that cannot be measured. Edwards Deming said, much that matters for management cannot be measured. And he was absolutely right. And that hasn't changed with big data. You know, maybe there's some more things that can be measured, but there's still a lot of things we need to know that can't be measured. And a lot of those things come from what I might call an accumulation of small impacts. You know, a lot of people doing a little tiny thing can have a very big effect. On the other hand, to what degree do we believe that a lot of people are doing that little tiny thing? So, for example, if you want to save the environment, everybody reusing one plastic bag a week in the entire world would probably make a big difference. But to what degree do you really want to bet on that? I think the other question I have is, all right, nudges happen. They're part of cultures. Cultures nudge people to get people to behave the way they want them to behave. There's a lot of signs and indications. And, you know, architecture reflects cultural influence too. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. it gets embedded in architecture and all this stuff. But the question is, to what degree can you artificially create a nudge 
and have it work the way you expect it to? Or do nudges need to emerge organically? And I think that's a lot harder question and why I really am skeptical about how much we can make it a core focus of marketing. Yeah. You know, the part of it that resonated with me was the words choice architecture. Mm -hmm. And you see that in political decisions where the choice is between A, B, or C. So that's it. One of those three is going to win. And therefore, you've limited the choice. And if the choice architecture limits it, well, then indeed you can nudge. Then mm -hmm. nudge definitely works. So if you're building your own store and the moment people come into your store, you can control everything, then nudging, I believe, works. And I think that was the example of your eye-level fruit or you know yeah. eye-level mm -hmm. other topics like the top shelf or the bottom shelf, right? That's where those cliches come from. So I think in those environments, it definitely works. But in a social environment where you actually cannot limit choice, I think what you can do is, you know, there's also huge confirmation bias. Like if mm -hmm. what you already agree with is also what you're being nudged with, then- Well, I guess here's what, the thought that occurred to me is, okay, let's look politically, right? Suppose something gets, we try to impose a nudge top down. So somewhere in the government, whether it's a nudge against teaching CRT-based stuff in schools, or whether it's certain kinds of bathrooms for, you know, transgendered kids, whatever, whichever, wherever you want to be on the political spectrum. Suppose that at the top, somebody decides something. The truth is, it's only going to work if it already is broadly accepted in society. In a lot of ways, I think the best the government can do is get something from like 60% of people are kind of doing it to 80%. And that's worthwhile. But, mm -hmm. the, you know, government cannot impose stuff that people don't automatically or aren't already generally wanting to do. The reason we're getting marijuana laws legalized these days is because so many people, I, I mean, as my brother said when he was a prosecutor in Boulder, he couldn't impanel a jury that would convict anyone on possession of marijuana. Mm -hmm. um, and society has already a, passed, yeah. Yeah, time's already passed. Society's already made its choice. And I think mm -hmm. that the government can nudge kind of together with society. It can't do it entirely on its own. And I think that's right true on. of a company as well. Yeah, yeah. Really excellent topic. And in behavioral science and such, I think we're going to continue to hear from this. And I hope we do with, with additional research. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Shall we continue on some of these popular topics? And let's go to growth hacking. Growth hacking. <laughs> so there is discussion about growth hacking and some controversy about, well, what is growth hacking happening? And then, you know, this is one of those terms that somebody defines it for themselves once, but then it goes into cultural use. And all of a sudden, we're all like, what the heck does this mean? Because it's a cultural use that, you know, people are saying, well, I'm a growth hack. What, what does that mean you're doing, you know? So let's start back at what's implied by it, you know? And I think yeah. your comment when we were talking a little earlier was it implies that you broke the rules, right? Hacking is essentially breaking the rules of some type. Now, it doesn't mean laws. It could be your own rules or your, you know, you have, there were limitations you couldn't go past or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, but you're a little closer to some of those theories, I think, down in the Silicon Valley. My top line comment is that growth hacking is just really bad branding. And as marketing people, why would we call something growth hacking when growth hacking universally elicits negative emotions in people who hear it? Right. I hack growth. Okay. You know, now I think I know what people mean. Now, hacking in software world usually means taking advantage of the design of the software in ways in which it wasn't prepared for. Mm -hmm. It did not account for this particular manner of usage 
So you can use the software unwittingly to the software in ways that allow you to get away with things. Now, sometimes that stuff is highly illegal, so you cannot do that. And mm -hmm. sometimes you get away with it because you were able to do it. And why did the software allow you to do it? So I think hacking can happen, therefore, in other contexts in the same way. So fundamentally, I think growth hacking is breaking process, if not breaking the rules. Now, sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's not okay. Debating that, I think, is the issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of the, you know, the, the question. I mean, things, I mean, we could look at one side and say, what are the things we set up artificially for ourselves that we do kind of have to hack to succeed? Yeah, you know, we artificially define limits, some of which are absolutely right and some of which are arbitrary. I mean, we define them because we think they're for our own safety or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I know a lot of people who just really always want to work for somebody. Well, that's a certain limit in life that you go through. And I was probably that kind of person until I got put in a situation where I went out and started my own company. And my God, I would never have it had, uh, happen any other way now. But, you know, those are big, those are big limits to break through. You know, they're kind of barriers yeah. we have to break. And the same thing with best practices. And I think a lot of startup companies, for example, are faced with ad agencies that come in and say, well, here's how you build your brand. And the company's like, hey, I got to sell some product, dude. You know, I need revenue. I can't do that. And the ad agencies say, oh, no, here's the way it's done. And they're reflecting a best practice. So I do think best practices sometimes get in the way of growth. And I think when you look at it that way, it's actually a really important thing to pay attention to. Definitely one category is what I call the definition of good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and my analogy in the old days was that if I give you three minutes and say, please design a bridge like the Golden Gate Bridge, and you got three minutes. Well, in three minutes, if you give me a back of the napkin drawing, that looks really decent, that is the definition of good. And you should be proud of that. Now, if I gave you $300 million and two years to come back with a proposed plan, then I need, and I expect a lot more. Now, if you show mm -hmm. up in the back of the napkin, it's, right? So mm -hmm. the definition of good changes with the parameters of time and resources and objectives, et cetera, et cetera. That also reminds me of a story that Tom Peters told with In Search of Excellence many years ago. I think it was one of those tapes anyway, where Lee Iacocca, who was running Chrysler at the time, had asked one of his lieutenants to uh, come up with a prototype of a convertible car based on a particular car that they had. And the guy had said, that's great, no problem. We can have one for you in six months or nine months or whatever the number it was. And he said, you don't understand. Just get a car and saw the top off the damn thing. So now that is a definition of good. So what I, for what he needed, he just wanted to see what the thing looks like. Whereas the other guy was trying to build a product life cycle to productize mm -hmm. something with safety mm -hmm. and regulations and this, that, and the other. So they were both right, but the objective was different. So I think if you say my objective is really quick sales with mm -hmm. the potential, you know, low-hanging fruit, five-yard touchdown customers, go do whatever you need to do, A-B testing, get it out there. Don't come back and say, well, this video is going to cost $10,000 and we don't have money for it. Just right. go do it on your iPhone and call it good. So break whatever process you need to break to optimize revenue and sales and execution 
So that, I think, is the essence of it. That's the objective, yeah? I absolutely agree. And there are a lot of, you know, kind of shoulds that get applied to marketing. You know, you should do it this way. You should do it that way. And sometimes those are helpful. Sometimes they aren't. But you only learn as you go forward. You have to do stuff. And then learn as you go and learn as you do. I was thinking as your time at Lee Iacocca that we need to be doing this all the time. That same question of, I, I think it's that question between prototype versus how likely it is that what's being done is going to be accepted as a finished thing. When I would work, you know, when I was on set and we'd be filming and I would be looking for a possible shot, very often I'd get very explicit about, can we put the camera on this and nobody else change anything? Because I just wanted to see through the camera, what might this look like? Because changing a shot is a huge deal. You've got lights to change, you've got sets to change, you've got all this stuff. So, you know, I'm trying to make a decision that do we want to spend an hour resetting for that shot? And so I just want to see the camera point over there. You know, just turn the camera and point it. Then let me see what it looks like. Yeah. And things where we're building a process that we're going to either love or hate 100 years. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, with the idea of we're working to make something happen, I think the danger with it is if Leah Iacocca has the guy cut the top off and then everybody else says, okay, well, that's all we're going to do with the car. And then they put it in production. You've got a problem. So well, right, somewhere exactly. you also yeah, have, yeah. have to have the communication that says, well, that was a hack. Now let's go back and do it right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So really, if it is avoiding bureaucracy or if it's avoiding limitations in your head or cultural mm-hmm. issues that get in the way of objective, no problem. Go break those processes. But if it is breaking ethics, if it is using outrage to achieve some short-term goal, if it mm-hmm. is going to cause reputational damage to the company as a result of what you're doing, if it is inconsistent with your social responsibilities or how yeah. all of those become really big no-nos. And I think that's the part of growth hacking that becomes really bad is when you compromise those really important things. I think particularly this day and age when we have so many examples around us of people who gain fame through infamy, people yeah. who do something bad and then leverage that into their future. And other people look at them and we're all, those of us who are doing things the good way go, wait a minute, what the hell, you know? I mean, you were talking uh, ahead of time about Paris Hilton releases a sex tape to gain fame. And now you see that happen more often. You know, no company who does that is going to build the right strength for itself in the long run, Mm -hmm. or it's going to have to be very focused on changing. Uh, something. Well, you know, in general, outrage causes attention. And whether it's accidental or intentional, of course, these days with reality TV being everywhere, you have to assume that everything that these celebrity types do is intentional. Mm-hmm. And it is part of a celebrity mm-hmm. choreographed branding strategy. And that obviously, the moment you think of that, then suddenly the authenticity is out the door and yeah. the effectiveness is out the door. So I think mm-hmm. it's a danger. You know, the problem is that when you cross those lines, you're using, you know, you're exploiting an asset that is really hard to build again. And that's a really big decision. But, you know, if you're just trying to get on the scene, then mm-hmm. it's a risky approach that might work and unfortunately all too often seems to work. Yeah, at least we see the successful ones. I think the king, uh, you know, just to wrap us up in a nice little bow. Yes, um, please. <laughs> the truth is, of those, we only see the successful ones. And this is always a problem we have, which is kind of a success bias or a survivor yeah. bias. We see the people who succeeded 
doing that. We see Paris Hilton, she's still around. Although, interestingly, Paris Hilton is now talking about the abuse she suffered as a child and growing up and talking much more serious things that you wouldn't have thought of back in the days of the sex tape. What we don't see are a thousand other people that tried it and it didn't work for them. And so we always have to be careful that you see somebody run off and do something and it goes viral. We've got to remember there were a thousand people who went off and tried it and it didn't go viral. Well, I think a really big topic in marketing should remain the ethics of marketing. Yes. I think marketing is a very difficult area. Mm -hmm. The idea of just matching real capabilities with real needs is an incredibly important piece of the economic puzzle, you know, in the globe. And marketing is uniquely qualified to pursue that. So I think that marketing gets a bad rap because of the attempt to manipulate and get away with it and cheat your way and mislead and cause people to spend money that they didn't want to spend. And I think Mm -hmm. we need to really wave the flag on the ethics of marketing much, much strongly. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we do as we go forward. Yeah, that's a a topic I'd love to take up in the future because I think it's really important. All right. Well, on that note, we can conclude this episode. Thank you all for being with us. Send any comments, share, like all the rest, and we'd love to hear from you. And until next episode. Thank you, Doug. All right. Thank you, Shane. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.